All right. All right. Hello. I think we're doing the thing. We are. You know, we are doing the thing. <laughs> it is the thing that of we the do. Doing. Yeah. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Yeah. Kind of sleepy, wanting this housing situation to be sorted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When do you go to look at that house? Uh, we looked at the house on Saturday. Yeah, yes. And while I think that the landlord is a very nice dude, I think that he's definitely overcharging what the house is worth, like, by a considerable amount. Yeah, and unfortunately he can right now. That's yeah. the shitty part. But I think that it's a lot, he's putting a lot into the neighborhood it's in, because it's in a really nice area. Ah. But it's in a really nice area. It's, like, near the high school. Like, a bunch of rich people live over there. Yeah. It's, like, the one of two kind of not-as-nice houses on the street. But, yeah, he's charging, he's asking eight seventy five for it, uh, which I know for you is not, that's... Probably very reasonable. Yeah, you can't get a one-bedroom apartment in my area for less than $1,100. Yeah, but comparatively, a house that was 200 square feet more and I think had a second bathroom, like three bedrooms, two baths, 1,200 square feet, was also 875 Mm. versus this one that was like two bedrooms, one bath, and like 800 square feet or 1,000 square feet maybe. Yeah. And so it's just like, it's a noticeable difference. And as we were kind of walking through it, I was like, this is fine. But also like, there are sizable, like notable problems with it. Mm. Like it's a, it's a cute house, but I'm not sure that it would work for us well. Gotcha. Just because of the size and the layout. It's one of those like the, when you open the bathroom door, it hits the toilet. Oh. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And, um. Like, the siding was really bad in one of the areas on the back of the house, and I don't know. There were just a lot of questionable things, and for the size versus price, I just wasn't feeling it. But we're going to keep looking. We're looking outside of town, too, into other areas, so we definitely got a bunch of emails out, but, you know, it's a holiday weekend, so I don't expect to hear, and I wouldn't, I'm not going to call anybody until Tuesday. Yeah, we're getting ready to do our move here, making plans with our new roomies <laughs> but anyway welcome to the strange and unusual where we discuss the strange and unusual and our housing dilemmas yep this is episode 117 of our series seeking out the weird the unexplained and the devious from around the world i'm roya and i'm casey And this time we're doing another Unsolved Crimes episode. Yep, we are. You can find us on various social medias. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for the Strange and Unusual podcast. You can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash strangeunusual. Um, All of this information will also be included in the show notes as well as in more detail at the end of the episode. Indeed. So what are you talking about today, Casey? Uh, I'm going to be talking about the largest art heist in American history. That sounds like more fun than my case. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Mr. Cruel. Which sounds fun. No, it doesn't. Mr. F- th- oh. Mr. Cruel? This, I, Mr. Cool. Oh, no. Mr. <laughs> Cruel. But don't worry. Mr. Cool comes up, oddly enough, in the episode. <laughs> the weird foreshadowing we have there. <laughs> yeah. Nope. 
Uh, so that sounds like you're going first then. Uh, I think so. Yes. Okay. I think that makes sense. Uh, wee woos, murder, mm. uh, pedophilia, and sexual assault of a child. Um, so this case is extra creepy because not only is it unsolved and also about child rape, but it's also fairly recent, um, with new victims and information coming forward fairly recently. Um, so I actually heard about this on TikTok on one of those kind of creepiest unsolved crimes no one talks about sort of videos. Yep. So on August 22nd, 1987, in Lower Plenty, Australia, a man wearing a black balaclava broke into a family home armed with a knife and a gun. He tied the hands and feet of both parents and locked them in a wardrobe. He tied the seven-year-old son to a bed and then raped the 11-year-old daughter. Mm. He had also cut the phone lines in the house before leaving. The victim would report that she witnessed her attacker use the family phone to call someone else during the break-in, during a break in his attack. Oh. Um, she reported that the call was a threatening one, and the assailant demanded the person on the other side of the line, quote, move their children or they would be, quote, next. Wow. He also referred to the unknown person as a bozo. <laughs> he and I have that in common. I did... The, uh, already at the start of this, it sounds very BTK. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when the police checked the phone records, however, there was no record of this call whatsoever, showing off the first red herring by Mr. Cruel. Mm. On December 27th, 1988, in Ringwood, another home was broken into by the back door early in the morning. The man was armed with a handgun and wearing a balaclava and dark blue overalls. Uh, I, I kind of saw some conflicting reports that they were overalls or coveralls. Like a boiler seat um, situation? Yeah, I, I kept seeing it kind of described both ways, so I don't know if, like, in Australia, if it's, like, the same terminology uh, yeah. Um, for the two. Gotcha. But uh, John Willis, his wife, and their four daughters were fast asleep when the assailant entered their home, only a couple of miles away from where the previous crime took place. He bound and gagged the parents and demanded money. He went through the house, cutting phone lines, and then went to the room where all four of the Willis daughters slept. He addressed addressed he addressed Sharon Will Willis by name. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. He grabbed their ten year old daughter Sharon and put tape over her eyes and a ball gag in her mouth and abducted her. Nah. She was released eighteen no hours <laughs> She was released eighteen hours on the grounds of Baywater High School. On July 3rd, 1990, in Canterbury, a man broke into a family home around 11.30 p.m. He had a knife, a gun, and again was wearing a balaclava. Mr. Cruel caught the two sisters home alone while their parents had left to attend a farewell party for a friend. The family lived in a prestigious, secure neighborhood, so the parents thought the girls would be safe at home. He tied and gagged the 13-year-old daughter, Nicola, and put tape over her eyes. He disabled the phone lines and searched the house for money. He then drove her to another house and molested her for 50 hours before releasing her at a power substation in the suburb of Kew. Ugh, like what do you do for 50 hours? My well, God. I, I, I don't know that he was doing anything the entire time, hmm. but over the 50 hours, he definitely molested her several times. Gotcha. I was like, damn, um, that's like, that's like two days. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Um... Nicola reported hearing him talking to someone else, but never heard another person respond. The police wondered if there was an accomplice, or if this was another red herring that Mr. Cruel tried to pull. Is this accomplice Mr. Cruel? 
Um, Nicola would also describe Mr. Cruel as being five foot eight and having reddish brown hair. There is another girl who is considered by some to be a victim of his, but currently she has not been directly linked to Mr. Cruel. On April 13th, 1991, a man wearing a black balaclava and dark green coveralls broke into a family home armed with a knife. Carmaine was watching her two younger siblings while her parents worked at the family restaurant. The invader told the girls that he only wanted money, and he put the two younger girls in a wardrobe and pushed a bed against it, saying that he wanted Carmine to show him where the money was. And it might be Carmaine, I'm not sure on the pronunciation, mm. um, but uh, he abducted 13-year-old Carmaine or Carmen Chan. Um, investigators found a note written in large, bold letters on Phyllis Chan's Toyota Camry, Toyota Camry shortly after the abduction. It read, quote, payback, Asian drug dealer, more, more to come. Sounds fake. Yeah. But after combing John Chan's background, this proved to be another one of Mr. Cruel's red herrings. Knew it. (laughs) Carmine's decomposed body with three gunshot wounds to the head was found a year later by a man walking his dog. Yikes. I don't like, can you imagine you're just like chilling walking your dog? Oops. Yeah, or what was the one she was looking for for food for her guinea pig? Yeah, like, I can't, no. I, I always get a little freaked out, too, when I'm, like, driving down the road and I see, like, a garbage bag or something. Uh-huh. I'm like, what's in there? Do I need to call the police? Do I need to tell somebody about this bag? I get really weird about, like, driving around rivers sometimes <laughs> or, like, lakes. <laughs> For the same reason of like, it's like I don't want I don't want to find a dead body. It's like when when you know you've watched too many cr- uh, true crime <laughs> situations. This is yeah. like Eddie found a bag by the side of the road. I don't want to be the person that finds the bag by the side. Yeah, of the or road. a suitcase or a body in a river. Not me. No thanks. Yeah. No thank you. Um. Some detectives though have their doubts about this crime being committed by Mister Cruel. When asked about it in 2013, Detective Chris O'Connor said, quote, We just don't know if it was Mr. Cruel who mur- murdered Carmine. We just can't be sure because there isn't enough evidence to make a value judgment about whether it was or wasn't him in the Carmine case. Right. Or, or like a copycat. Like Zodiac had so many. Like, yeah. Could have been anybody. Um, some of the theories about why Mr. Cruel murdered Carmine after releasing the other victims swirled. Um, Her mother's theory is that it was because her daughter was stubborn and would have fought viciously against her attacker. Um, It's also likely that she learned too much about him for him to be able to let her go. Um, Potentially pulled off his balaclava, saw his face, um, any number of things that could have happened um, as a result. The news, the Sun newspaper gave him the moniker of Mr. Cruel after police described a serial home invasion rapist as being, quote, super cool and super cruel. I imagine they meant super cool, like cool and calm under pressure and not like he rocked or was was awesome or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope the police wouldn't say that, but you never know anymore. Yeah. I mean, these are the Australian police. Maybe they suck less. Maybe. I, I doubt that, though. So. Hey, Cam. Well. <laughs> Australian cops are bastards. <laughs> I don't know. Australian listeners, let us know. <laughs> Sound off. The police describe Mr. Cruel as highly intelligent with a meticulous eye for detail, given the nature of his attacks. They believed he conducted intense surveillance on the victims and their families and ensured that he left no forensic evidence behind. 
He was careful to cover his face at all times and even left red herrings in order to divert the family and or police attention. He was described as being soft-spoken and his behavior was unhurried. He even took a break during an attack to eat a meal. Boo. Who else did that? Who was eating uh, Gold- who was eating the Golden spaghetti State. when they when the police showed up? I don't know. Oh gosh, I have to I know Golden Golden State would do it. He would have like whole meals in his victim's house while they were tied up. What a what a piece of garbage. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Sorry. It is also believed that Mr. Cruel videotaped and or took still photos um of his attacks. The consensus between detectives is that if he is still alive, he would have kept those pieces of evidence and likely collects other child pornography. Mm. They agree that he certainly continues to collect porn through the internet and may even communicate with children using chat lines. Like I said, he was meticulous with his crimes and his second victim promised to release her at exactly 50 hours, which he did. He also carefully bathed the victims, um, one victim describing it as, quote, like a mother washing a baby, end oh, quote. No, thank you. I saw that they, like, they even, she, the victims even had their teeth brushed and flossed by him as well before being released. Yeah, no, I, I no, no thanks. Um, in two of the cases, he took a second set of clothing from the home so the girls would have something to wear when he let them go. Okay. Um, with the MO being the same between all of the attacks and the victim statements all describing the same man and actions, it's hard not to connect them together. Yeah. Um, the two known survivor surviving victims of Mr. Cruel have provided some details of the house that they had been in. They both described being leashed to the bed, and they also said that they could hear planes landing, which led police to believe that the house was on one of the flight paths to the airport. In 1991, the police established the Spectrum Task Force in an effort to catch Mr. Cruel. They searched over 30,000 homes and interviewed 27,000 suspects, costing around $3.8 million AUD. I wonder what that is in... I don't know. I didn't look it up. Oh, okay. Less than $3.8 million US. (laughs) Or more. More than... 3.8 3.8 million US. A $300,000 reward was offered for information that led to the conviction. The task force was disbanded in January of 1994. The task force also investigated earlier crimes from 1985 to 1987 with similar MOs, but could not locate some of the witness statements or information on those crime scenes. This included the tape and rope used to restrain those earlier victims. The head of the task force, David Sprague, stated that some of the pieces of evidence had never been examined by forensics and were either lost or thrown away. What the fuck is it with police throwing away evidence? (laughs) Why? I don't know, man. And losing evidence. Um, In December of 2010, the police established the Apollo task force about eight months later. about eight months earlier, following new information uh, and intelligence in regards to the Mr. Cruel case. Mm. Um, so in, in dis- to clarify that, because it's kind of a weird sentence. So in December, they said eight months ago, we established this task force and didn't tell anybody, basically. Okay. And then it became public knowledge in December because they were trying to work in secret to hopefully catch this guy. Yeah. They had been reviewing the information from the Spectrum Task Force from the 90s, as well as new leads and information that had surfaced. The task force was closed on June 2013, in June 2013, after determining that the new information was not credible and the suspect they had been investigating was ruled out. In April of 2016, the Herald Sun newspaper published details from the Spectrum Task Force dossier on seven suspects. 
the newspaper also published the details of police witness statements. On April 13th, 2016, on the 25th anniversary of Carmine's murder, the police increased the reward for information on her death to $1 million AUD. There is an additional reward of 200000 on each of the abductions and assaults. And anyone with information about this case is urged to call Crime Stoppers and provide it. No amount of information is too small. Uh, it might lead to, you know, information leading to arrests, which might make you a million dollars richer. There you go. Um, and I will put more information about the Crime Stoppers numbers and things like that in the show notes as well. Hmm. Wouldn't it be nuts if one of our listeners did that? Wouldn't it be? Yeah, that would be And so would we cool. ever find out about it? Like, would I mean, we ever I, know? That would be great. Can you imagine what a pop we would get on the <laughs> internet? Our viewership would go, like, can you imagine BuzzFeed article? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thanks to the prompting of mediocre podcasts. <laughs> strange and unusual do we do people still look at buzzfeed i don't know it probably gets like pushed onto people's facebook still that's fair if the strange and unusual podcast could be in a headline boy howdy oh man i don't like that story yeah i'm not i'm not a fan either zero out of five stars (laughs) not for the storytelling just for the content well uh my story is in comparison rather lighthearted. so uh we woos police art (laughs) duct tape the mafia and that's it uh well look i spent i thought buzzfeed unsolved barely got 10 minutes out of this case and there's no way i will be spending 12 hours on researching these things and then you were wrong false no (laughs) so let me start with the origin story that is elizabeth stewart she was born on she was born in new york city uh sometime in 1840 to a well-off family she got a good education in new york and then she went to paris for finishing school so she was real you know real well off real fancy got it in 1860 she married jack gardner and they moved to boston where her father had purchased a house for them as a wedding gift wow yeah must be nice Right. The two traveled the world and she became interested in art. Specifically, she got involved with other intellectuals in Boston through readings and lectures and things like that. And she was encouraged by Harvard's first art history professor, Charles E. Norton, to start collecting rare books and manuscripts that she was interested in. And she started with early editions of Dante's. So, like, she... She went for it. Over the years, uh, she meets other amazing artists and she begins uh, acquiring incredible works of art. Her chief art advisor, Bernard ba- Bernard Berenson, said that, quote, she lives at a rate and intensity with a reality that makes her or that makes other lives seem pale, thin and shadowy. Some notable pieces in her collection were uh, Titian's Rape of Europa. Uh, another one was she, she like she had a number of Rembrandt's Rembrandt's. Sorry. Um, including his only seascape, the storm on the Sea of Ga- or Christ in the Storm at Sea of Galilee, uh, which is important later. I don't know, kind of. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> she also had art by Raphael, uh, Degas, uh, yeah, uh, Matisse, and Manet. So Jack and Isabel, they had this plan to purchase some land and build a museum to house all of these incredible works of art. Uh, but Jack died suddenly of a stroke in 1898. But Isabella went ahead and went on with their plans and the construction started in 1899 she moved into the fourth floor private living quarters of the museum that they had built or she had built uh not not herself you know what i mean she moved in and uh she made all the arrangements of the arts on the lower floor uh levels into galleries 
and uh, people compare this place to a Venetian castle because it was pretty plain on the outside, but it was like crazy beautiful inside. And there was a themed gallery for like every room. And it was this incredible, luscious courtyard at the center. Um, She even at one point wasn't ready to open. She wanted to have the acoustics tested. So she had blind kids from the, the nearby blind school to come in so they couldn't see anything. But they would test her acoustics for her. That's That's some rich people shit. Yeah. That's some, yeah. So anyway, the lower floors were filled with like 15,000 pieces of incredible art and letters from amazing people like Beethoven and illuminated manuscripts and a and a vase from ancient China. Like, it was crazy. And all of this was installed between 1901 and 1902 as she's collecting more things. This place was finally open to the public in the early part of 1903, and for 20 years, Isabella would organize concerts and readings and lectures and exhibitions. But she died in 1924, leaving the museum with something like $3.6 million in endowment for, the, for their continued operation, essentially. But in this endowment, she said nothing was to be permanently changed, no adding more to the collection, no selling pieces of the collection, no changing of the arrangement. If things were to be changed, she wanted everything crated up, shipped to Paris, sold at auction, and for the proceeds to go to Harvard University. So this is all well and good, but 80 years passed by and the museum is, you know, running low on funds. 3.6 million only goes so far in running a business. Uh... It is not in the best condition at this point. They lacked things like climate controls for the art. Their security was lackluster. And one source even said that they didn't have any insurance for theft. So like the building, the building was insured and like they had damage insurance, but no theft insurance. That seems like the opposite way you want to go. Like I would say that you want to insure your items. I think over your building when you if you have to pick one or the other in this situation. I think the opposite because it was such an old building and they probably were more concerned about like leaks and damage to the art and then they had security in place and thought theft is the last thing we need to worry about. We clearly have this under wraps. <laughs> <laughs> Uh If you couldn't tell from what my intro was, this clearly did not happen. So during this time where they're lacking all of this stuff, the FBI found out about a plot of theft in the early 80s. Um, This is important a little bit later, but they started considering improvements to the security. uh, But there were concerns about the nature of the endowment and all that. Changing anything too much might go against her wishes. So they didn't want to add in a bunch of cameras or anything that would... uh, defy Isabel's wishes and I think her wishes were probably I don't want my shit to get stolen but you know that's just me reading the room (laughs) I mean she didn't specifically say (laughs) that she didn't want that (laughs) I mean you're right you're right Uh, but they ended up installing motion sensors and a CCTV system which was actually just four cameras on the outside of the building but the sensors only alerted the guards and police still needed to be contacted separately, like manually, either via the panic button or a control room phone. Like, I don't know. Uh, but they also I also read that some museums at the time would work with police and they would call if they didn't have a direct tie to the police. They would call every hour and say, hey, everything's still good here. No worries. Um, so if they didn't call in, the police would come to investigate and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like if this were to happen now, you would have a situation where you could arrange it where if like the alarm stayed triggered for five minutes or yeah. something. That like the, the way security would be. systems work today. Yeah. yeah. 
but this was not procedure at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. You so, don't say. As the 80s are closing out, an independent consultant comes in to assess the security situation and they suggest some improvements. They even got some, uh, some, I'm sorry, they even got some suggestions from the director at the Boston Museum of Fine Art saying like, hey, this is how you could improve your art security situation. Uh, but these were all going to take time to fund. As I've said, they've gone through some amount of money already and the board of trustees was unwilling to provide the resources uh, again because they thought any major renovations would piss off their dead benefactor so they did not improve approve the improvements why are they so afraid of this white lady's ghost (laughs) that's an excellent question so i'm all for following the wishes of the dead but like come on we're protecting a legacy where do we draw the line i don't know well and not just that like how much of this art is impossible to value yeah you know like it is literally priceless art yep and like at what point do you say like yeah no she would want us to make sure this shit didn't get stolen i feel like if a piece got stolen that would irrevocably change (laughs) what is available (laughs) in the museum which then means we have to box everything up and sell it all yep like, these two things go hand in hand here. So according to the mu- the museum's website, this was the single largest property theft in the world. In the early morning hours of Sunday, March 18th, 1990, a car was parked outside of the museum, described by witnesses as a red hatchback. Witnesses uh, Nancy Clofferty and Justin Startman were out and about between 1230 and 1 a.m. They said the the palace street where it was located it seemed quiet and it was dark with only the dim lighting of the street lights and as they walked down the street they noticed a car with its lights on parked near the museum they saw two people inside two men in the front seats and in police uniforms justin noted that the doc in the docuseries uh from netflix this is a robbery uh that they had bl- the the shoulder patches that were of the Boston Police Department. So they assumed that these police were in the area to put a stop to parties that might be happening. So they just left because it's March 18th. And if you if you March 17th is St. Patrick's Day. So it's the the morning, the wee hours between the two. And uh, it's Boston. So people are partying for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, That is a thing they do. That is a thing they do. So the there are these two guards on duty that night richard abbott who was 23 and randy heston who was 25 abbott was a usual for the night shift uh, but this was heston's first overnight shift abbott was a self-proclaimed hippie who dropped out of berkeley's music school in the unsolved episode about the case ryan says that abbott would come in after a band's shows and he would sometimes even be drunk or high because he had quote the world's most boring job uh but he claimed to be sober the night of the heist conveniently so it seems like from what i understood about the security that one person would stay in the control room and the other would go do their rounds and they would communicate via walkie-talkie around 12 30 during abbott's round a fire alarm went off on the third floor uh, but he found no evidence in the galleries of smoke or fire so it was clearly a false alarm and from what i understand they weren't actually sure if this fire alarm is ever tied to the upcoming heist, like hmm. the police never decided whether or not that was a connected, a, a, a connected. Wow. <laughs> a connection. Uh, so Abbott returned to the security desk around 1 a.m. and Heston went on his rounds. 
while at the desk, two police officers buzz into the control room from the front door at around 1.20 a.m., claiming that they were called about a disturbance on the premises. Abbott thought it was odd, but it's Saturday night and it's the night of St. Patrick's Day. Maybe some rowdy party goer was seen trying to climb the fence. So he let them in, which was First of all, allegedly against protocol. So they're not supposed to allow anyone in after hours. Like everyone says this about him. But I'm like, is there no exception for the police? In the 80s, it feels like there would be an exception for the police, at least. Uh, Like, what if the place is on fire? Are you not allowed to let the firefighters in because it's not against it's against protocol? Like, I can't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like, where's the limit of this? Yes. So anyway, 124 a.m. The two policemen are standing in front of Abbott now. The first man was described as tall and skinny in his 30s with what Abbott suspected was a fake mustache. The second man was shorter, also with a mustache and gold wire rim glasses. But a real mustache. No, uh, probably also a fake mustache. Oh, okay. But Sorry. more convincing. M- maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there. Didn't seem... Cannot cannot uh, comment on the quality of mustache. <laughs> so here's a quote from the experience in his own words from StoryCorps. You know, most of the guards were either older or they were college students. Nobody there was capable of dealing with actual criminals. But that night, two cops rang the doorbell. They had hats, badges. They looked like cops. And I let them in. They said, are you here alone? And I said, I have a partner that he's out on a round. They said, call him down. So Abbott radioed Heston and he came back down to the security desk. They used a soundbite from him in This is a Robbery where he says, The cop turned to me and said, Don't I know you? Don't I recognize you? I think there's a warrant out for your arrest. Can you step out from behind the desk? And then he said, Up against the wall. Abbott did what he was asked, admittedly, because he had tickets to a Grateful Dead concert that night. So he moved away from the desk and the panic button, the only thing linking him to the actual police. He noted that he wasn't frisked at all before being cuffed, and it was while Randy was being handcuffed that the police announced famously, gentlemen, this is a robbery. Uh, Actually, in the Unsolved episode, uh, it's mentioned that Randy asked what they were being arrested for, and the suspect responded, you're not being arrested, this is a robbery. But everywhere else it says, gentlemen, this is a robbery. So, whatever. It's also said that they told Randy not to cause any problems, uh, and that they wouldn't be hurt if they if they cooperated. And Randy allegedly responded, they don't pay me enough to get hurt. I mean, fair. It's like, hell yeah, Randy. Uh, And I did read that they were barely getting over minimum wage at the time, which was only $3.80. I mean, I know inflation is a thing, but $3.80 an hour. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, but like a mortgage costs like two hamburgers and a nickel. (laughs) I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. So Randy and Richard were both bounded, bound with duct tape and put in the basement. Randy claimed that his captor wasn't a dick about it, though. And he also said several times, sorry to have to do this. At least he was nice. Yeah. <laughs> Abbott said, they duct taped around my eyes and duct taped like the bottom of my chin to the top of my head. And they handcuffed me to the electrical box for seven hours. At first, I was panicking. And then... I started singing, I Shall Be Released by Bob Dylan. I don't know how long I was singing that damn song for, but it was quite some time. (laughs) And I really recommend looking up these pictures of uh, Richard Abbott because the way they duct taped his fucking head. It's very haphazard. It's it's wild. And he's got this long, like, weird owl hair. It's, It's bizarre to look at. 
According to an article on... Yeah, he Gar- kind of looks like mankind. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he does. According to an article on GardnerHeist.com, a roommate of Haston, uh, who worked at the museum as well, told a podcast, Empty Frames, that the physical and psychological trauma experienced by Heston was considerably worse than anything suggested by or about the guard, the other guard, Richard Abbott. Now, a burglary lasts for maybe 10 minutes in a normal situation. That's that's a, that's like a lengthy burglary because usually you get in, you get what you want, you get the fuck out. Yeah. These thieves were in the gardener for 81 minutes. Wow. It took them about 10 minutes to deal with Abbott and Heston, and then another 13 minutes passed before the first motion detector alarm went off at 1.48. Alarms went off in the security office to alert the guards of movement, much of which was done in the Dutch room, but there were no guards there to call the cops, of course, and the cops were none the wiser. One source, I don't remember which one, it said that the thieves actually smashed up one of these uh, like motion sensor alarms when they like the, the sound went off and they smashed it. So around 2.30 a.m., they checked in on the guards and that they had locked in the basement and they were like, hey, is everybody okay down here? Meanwhile, uh, they just hear Bob Dylan being shout-screamed, <laughs> shout-sang. And before they left, they destroyed video evidence of the robbery at the museum. 13 works of art were stolen that night worth $200 million at the time, which would today put it around 5 or $6 million. They took the concert by Vermeer, and, and Vermeer only has like 30 paintings, the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, which I mentioned earlier, a lady and gentleman in black, and the sketched self-portrait by Rembrandt. Uh, they took the landscape, of, uh, landscape with Obelisk by Flink, Shea Tortini by Manet, there were five different works by Degas, the Shang Dynasty vessel from China. It was It's called a goo, which I love. Um, and a finial eagle from a Napoleonic banner, which really wasn't worth a lot from what I understand. And everybody everybody who talks about it is kind of like, why the fuck did they take that? It looked like they tried to take the whole banner, but they couldn't get it down. So somebody just like said, fuck it and took the eagle. Maybe the eagle was the only part the client wanted. Maybe. But there was another Rembrandt painted a, um, sorry, there was another Rembrandt, a painted self-portrait of him at 23, which had been removed from the wall, but it looked like they gave up or ran out of time. That morning was the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade. Hundreds of thousands of people would have been in Boston for the parade, and there was a giant police presence. This was also in an area pretty far away from the museum. So when the next shift came in around 7.30 that morning, they were surprised to find that the two guards on duty would not answer or buzz them in. They ended up having to call their security director to be let in, like, to get through the door. They found cameras turned away. The office door was busted open. There was a crowbar against the wall. The actual Boston police were called, and according to one of the morning guards that had tried to get in that morning, they brought a box of donuts. <laughs> At this point, I literally wrote, oink, oink, motherfucker. Anyway, the two night shift guards were found duct taped and but, but alive in the basement. That's good. Yeah. But the crime scene was pretty horrific. Paintings had been cut from their stretchers rather than removed from the backing. Uh, stacks of those empty gold frames were lying around. And if you're if you're not familiar with how paintings are stretched over canvas, uh, Roya explained to me that they uh, you basically just lose the pieces of the painting that were behind the frame. Yeah, and the the potential integrity of some of the paint. Yeah, like if you're 
you know, you hope that they're rolling up the canvas and not folding it. But if they're folding it, then that could potentially completely crack and ruin Mm -hmm. um, old oil paintings and things like that. But I mean, these paintings weren't designed to be removed from their canvas right. so or from their frames. So yeah, you're going to lose anything that was behind the frame, as well as the integrity of the painting stretched over the frame. Which is substantial when you're talking about $200 million worth of art. Yeah. Irreplaceable art. Yeah. Not, not prints, not living artists even, that could redo it, you know. So the FBI shows up and the investigation starts, uh, but there's very little physical evidence left behind. And they, the FBI came in because it's so easy to transfer art, transfer art across state lines. So they just like immediately came in. There were several latent fingerprints on the frames, but because of the number of people who had handled the art at the museum, they, I don't know, didn't run all of them or didn't get what they needed from it. Uh, so they still aren't sure if the thieves wore gloves. They also tell the museum almost immediately to prepare a reward for information. But this museum's already low on funds. So they end up asking auction houses like uh, Sotheby's and Christie's for money, eventually offering a million dollar reward for information on the missing art. And this was a fun side note. Uh, the Christie's location in Los Angeles sold a number of Rudy Kernighan's wines in April of 2007. <laughs> Just to throw back. So in 1997, this was bumped up to $5 million and then to $10 million in 2017, the largest reward ever offered by a private institution. So as you've probably guessed, they got a lot of tips. And they followed up on a lot of them, too, since they had literally nothing else to go on. One book even said that they were listening to alleged psychics at one point, which will be kind of important for next week's episode. So composite drawings were created from the descriptions provided by Abbott and Heston uh, with questionable accuracy, of course. And Abbott later said that those drawings were garbage. This was clearly a crime that required a lot of planning, though. So the museum had been cased or maybe it was an inside job. But these robbers seemed to know things about the place that weren't common knowledge, like a secret door that was opened. Uh, but they were they also never asked the guards for directions when leading them to the basement or the guards never mentioned being asked for directions. Another interesting thing to note is that they either had a shopping list for specific items or they had no idea what they were doing. Their choices were just weird. The art that they took was, of course, valuable, but they weren't going for the real high-ticket items. They never bothered going for the Rape of Europa, which was considered by many at the time to be the most valuable piece of art in the city. They also passed over works by Raphael, Botticelli, Michelangelo, and then spent time taking the goo and the eagle. Like, what? Still, it was the highest value museum robbery until 2019, but that's another story. So there were some interesting subjects, subjects, suspects early on, including Rick Abbott. Investigators said that his behavior was suspicious and he was telling a story with a lot of inconsistencies. And the people in This is a Robbery, including uh, Steve, oh gosh, I can't remember how to say his last name, Kirkjian. Uh, he wrote for the Boston Globe and also wrote a book called Master Thieves about the heist. And they really tear Rick apart. <laughs> There's evidence of him going and closing, opening and closing a side door to the outside during his shift for seemingly no reason. And so officers suspected he was signaling to the thieves that he was about to take over at the front desk. He claimed that he would do this all the time to make sure that the door was locked. Uh, but there's no evidence that ever supported that. And a number of people said they never saw Rick do that. 
There were a number of other little things, like the fact that no sensor was triggered in the blue room where the Manet was taken, and the only known footsteps in that room were from his rounds earlier that night. Additionally, the frame for the piece that was left on the there was a sorry. Additionally, there was a frame for a piece left on the chair in the security chief's office, and they were known to not have the best relationship. Rick apparently liked to complain about the security to the point or like to point out how they were in danger and how this place was going to get robbed. I mean, he was right, though. (laughs) So, well, I mean, yeah, but it makes him look sus. So they mentioned how he broke protocol by letting them in, uh, how this wasn't his first time breaking that protocol as he had let in some friends during a New Year's Eve party years prior. And then there was a video released in just 2015 of him doing the same thing and letting in an unidentified man the night before this this heist. Ooh, and when asked, the intrigue. He, yeah. When asked, he said, I don't remember who that was. Other former employees did come forward and say, actually, that was our boss. Like, that was the chief of security, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't worry about that. But they talk about how police took their time and it feels, or the, sorry, they talk about how the the fake police, the, the, the robbers, they took their time like they knew the police weren't coming. Uh, they knew that where the security tapes were or would have been. And in the end, it was decided that while all of these things were suspicious, the guards couldn't be involved because they were too incompetent. Oof. No joke. I think it was one of the attorneys on the case that was like, after seriously, seriously suggesting in the documentary that this was an inside job, cough, Rick, cough. He was like, I don't want to put anything on Rick's shoulders. If we could have charged somebody, we would have. It's like, no, you literally just spent the last 30 minutes saying it was fucking Rick. (laughs) Yeah, we can't prove it, but it was him. Yeah. Another former guard even mentioned that the alarms did not work 100% of the time, despite the fact that they brought in people to check the alarms just before and after the heist. He suggested that there were issues uh, with power glitches, and that could have been what set off the alarm as well. The fire alarm earlier. Sorry. So another potential suspect was James Whitey Bolger, a Boston crime boss for the Winter Hill Gang, known from crimes like racketeering, extortion, drug-related crimes, money laundering, and of course, 19 counts of murder. So if you've ever seen the movie The Departed, Jack Nicholson's character, Frank Costello, was based on Whitey Bolger. That's the kind of guy we're dealing with here. Whitey didn't take credit for it. And he actually had his own men out looking for who did because the crime was committed on his turf and he was owed tribute. So Bolger was known for his ties to the Boston police and potentially had access to the uniforms. Uh, It's also thought that he had ties with the Irish Republican Army, which might be important later. It comes up. The FBI agent who looked into Bolger, Thomas McShane, wrote a book about the theory claiming that the fire alarm before the theft was something of a calling card for the IRA. So that's important to keep in mind, I guess. In that Netflix uh, docuseries, they tried to implicate a possible connection to Miles Connor, who was a known art thief at the time. He was in federal custody at the time of the heist, though, and apparently even called in to say from jail, this wasn't one of mine, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't sneak out, commit this and sneak back in jail. So investigators looked into another known thief and con man named Brian McDevitt. He previously had hijacked a FedEx trucks, a FedEx truck by dousing the driver with ether. Sorry, I'm gonna start that over because I totally fucked that up. Yeah, I was like douse the driver with ether. It was dosing. <laughs> Not dousing. <laughs> All right. 
Investigators looked into another known thief and con man named Brian McDevitt. He'd previously hijacked a FedEx truck by dosing the driver with ether, intending on committing a similar crime for the Hyde collection in Glen Falls, New York in 1981. He wore the FedEx uniform and planned on binding the museum employees with handcuffs and duct tape and cutting the art from the frames. Sound familiar? Yeah, a little bit. But he and his accomplice got stuck in traffic and got to the museum after it closed. (coughs) He ended up serving 10 months for the attempt, though. The book Gardner Heist, A True Story of the World's Largest Unsolved Art Theft by Ulrich Bosser uh, claims that he even told police specifically that he intended to steal a Rembrandt. So it's easy to see why they would make this connection. And since at the time of the heist, he also only lived 10 minutes away from the gardener. So by the time the FBI got around to interviewing him in the latter part of 1990, he was living in Los Angeles trying to pass as a famous author writing a screenplay. Anybody want to guess what that movie was about? An art thief? An art theft! That reminds me of that the firebugs episode where yeah. he wrote a, a book about the crimes but he definitely was not involved definitely with the crimes didn't do it so he told the fbi at the time i had a beard so i don't match the description and he declined a polygraph test i mean i but, don't blame him on that one but his fingerprints didn't match anything on the scene so he was never really charged and then he died in 2004 In 1994, Anne Hawley, who was the museum's first woman director and worked there sometime somewhere between uh, a brain just stopped reading numbers. Sorry. (laughs) She worked there between 1989 to 2016. She received a letter. The anonymous writer claimed that they knew about the heist and they were in a position where they could negotiate a return of the art. They said they were a third party. They didn't know the location of the art or the identity of the thieves, but they were aware that the thieves were no longer in a position like to need the art. And they had initially stolen it in an attempt to reduce a possible prison sentence. There's a lesser charge uh, for the exchange of art, which Miles Connor had done in the past. So no longer in need of the art, they wanted to negotiate its return, though another source claimed that the pieces were said to be sold to a buyer from another country who was unaware of it being stolen. I couldn't find the actual letters or else I would have, you know, read them to you. Yeah. The claimant asked for $2.6 million to facilitate the return. They also seemed to have information only known to the FBI and the museum at the time, so they had some amount of credibility. The instruction was to print a coded message in the Boston Globe if they were interested, which they did, and the message was printed on May 1st, 1994. A second letter said that the author was pleased in their interest, but discouraged by the law enforcement getting involved and told the director they needed to consider their options, and she never heard from them again. So, the FBI was really involved and really interested because of how much work they were doing to fight the mafia at the time. They were interested in the Boston mafia for this, uh, originally considering the Irish mob. Um, and then they uh, would have passed it on to the IRA or possibly the Italian mafia, La Costa Nostra. You know, we don't, they didn't know. They were like, well, this feels like organized crime. We're going to, we're going to get organized crime. So, <laughs> One suspect said, uh, I'm sorry, one suspect that gets brought up a lot in the Italian mob version of the story is Bobby Donati, who was the driver and friend of mobster Vinnie Ferrero. Ferrero was arrested in 1989. There were a lot of gang wars going on at this time and the FBI was really cracking down. So Donati visited Ferrero in jail once 
before the theft and two times afterwards. He was also very good friends with Miles Connor. In one of Connor's big heists, Donati was his accomplice. And in the docuseries, Connor's interviewed and he just goes, Bobby, there's something I always liked about Italians. (laughs) I was like, okay, Miles, do your thing. But he claims that Bobby had put the whole thing together for their heist at the Woolworth estate. So it was Bobby's idea. Uh, He would have also known about Connor's experience about asking for a lesser sentence to be released from prison early in Miles's case by offering up a return of a rare art piece. So he would have perhaps considered completing this heist as a way to get Vinny out of prison. There are mentions of Bobby becoming less outgoing and some would say paranoid. He allegedly left his house on September 21st and was found on the 24th in the trunk of his own car, not far from his home, having been beaten, stabbed over 20 times with his throat slit. Woof. Miles Connor on the docuseries actually said that he was decapitated and shot to hell. Of course, no suspects were ever officially named because nobody cares who kills a mobster, I guess. But they have recently claimed that this Or case... they're completely paid off. That's true. Uh, police have recently, or FBI rather, has recently claimed that this case is solved. Not Donati's, but the art heist. In 2013, they claim to have made significant headway in the case. On the FBI's online archives, there is a press release from the FBI's Boston Division on March 18th, 2013. The FBI believes it has determined where the stolen art was transported in the years after the theft and that it knows the identity of the thief. They said the... They have a high-level degree of confidence in the... Sorry. The FBI believes that with a high degree of confidence in the years after the theft, the art was transported to to Connecticut and to Philadelphia, and some of the art was taken to Philadelphia where it was offered for sale by those responsible for the theft. With that same confidence, we have identified the thieves who are members of a criminal organization with a base in mid-Atlantic states and New England. That's what they said. They knew where it was. They knew who did it. In 2014, the lead agent, Jeff Kelly, put forward some names, though no one could directly be tied to the crimes, like Carmelo Carmelo Merlino. So, please, mob, if you're listening, mafia, (laughs) don't come for me. I'm just, I read this on the internet. So, Carmelo Merlino was loyal to the Boston Mafia boss, Frank uh, Salome, and ran his operations out of a garage and a repair shop, which is pretty typical. They suspected Merlino and his associates having learned of information of the museum from Louis Royce, who was responsible for that first attempted theft that I talked about that the FBI busted in the early 80s. The two robbers were later named as George Reisfelder and Lenny DiMuzio, who worked for Merlino. A couple other names come up, uh, Bobby Garante and Robert Gentile, uh, when, when Bobby Donati's son, uh, when he knew his dad was missing, he started calling his dad's friends and Bobby Garante was the first one. Garante had been a part of a gang working with Royce to case the gardener and Garante died in 2004 from cancer. But according to one Boston news station, his widow came forward in 2010 and said that her husband had owned some of the pieces for a time, saying that when he was diagnosed, he passed two of those paintings off to Robert Gentile after they'd met up for lunch in Portland. He, of course, denied this, but was later brought in on drug charges and was questioned. He submitted to a polygraph test and denied knowing about the theft or location of the art, but the lie detector test determined that was a lie. 
With a warrant, the FBI searched his home and found some shady shit, but nothing conclusive. Like, there was a secret compartment under the floor in a shed, and his son said, allegedly, that little ditch under the shed had flooded at some point, and his dad was super angry about it. He also, they also said they found a newspaper article about the heist in the house with a list of the art that had gone missing and prices of what they might be worth. He never confessed to knowing anything more and maintained that he was framed by the FBI and died a year later. And I mean, come on, it's the FBI. I believe it. (laughs) But that same news station reported in February of this year uh, about a classic mob hit that took place on February 20th, 1991, and the victim was Jimmy Marks. To this day, the Marks murder is officially unsolved, and there was never any arrest. But the investigators think that Jimmy Marks may be linked to the Gardner art heist, and now the FBI is actively pursuing this lead. Uh, a tip had come in about Jimmy Marks having been, or had having had some of the Gardner artwork and that he had hidden it, so they were looking into it. In 2010, Garenti's widow, a, who had mentioned to the FBI that there was some Irish guy her husband was associated with, and his name was Jimmy, but she couldn't remember his last name. So it was discovered that Jimmy Marks, or, quote, Irish Jim, had been killed by Garente, the plot thickens. <laughs> in 2018, they announced that they knew the men responsible, pointing the finger at Ricefelder and uh, Lenny DeMuso. And there's a strong case that another gangster, David Turner, was involved, but nothing, you know. And these two guys who worked for uh, Merlino, uh, Ricefelder's sister-in-law was on the, do- the documentary, and the, <laughs> the police apparently questioned her and said uh, they thought, her brother-in-law was involved she's like no he wouldn't he you know that's not kind of thing he would do and they start explaining to her that the guards or the police kept apologizing to the guards and that the heist took 81 minutes and she was like nope that was him that was my brother (laughs) (laughs) quickly just to talk about that ira theory dutch private investigator arthur brand has been called the indiana jones of the art world He's found several stolen or missing art pieces over the years, including a $28 million Picasso that was stolen two decades ago and was found in 2019. According to Artnet News, Brand is not officially working on the case with the FBI, but they know he periodically receives tips about the case and he is willing to serve as a middleman with the government for any anyone relevant with a, with relevant information who is willing to come forward. In 1991, it's said that he acquired images of stolen art in storage in Holland. And in 2010, he heard that they were in the custody of a member of the IRA. One of his theories was that a small-time thief stole the art, sold it off to a gang like Winter Hill, perhaps. Um, And from there, they ended up in the hands of IRA commanders. There have been tips from Canada, South America, Jamaica, and France. We could literally speculate all day and think about where is this art? Who has it? Did the FBI try to frame somebody for this because they're involved with, you know, a mob? Probably, maybe, who knows? In 2017, the Boston Globe published an article with the headline, Evidence in Gardner Museum Thefts that Might Bear DNA is Missing. So that bodes well. The duct tape that was used (laughs) on the two guards was gone, so they couldn't even look at that for fingerprints or or DNA. But the gardener is still offering that $10 million reward for the paintings. So, you know, if you know anything, the statute of limitations is up and they said they have no intentions of trying to prosecute anybody who returns the items. That's $10 million if you can return all of them undamaged. You know, just a few little caveats to that $10 million reward. But there it is. The most expensive heist in the United States. The end. (laughs) I just, I can't even imagine... 
Like, I think it's so funny that there's, like, zero insurance <laughs> on, against theft. Not anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. like... So, yeah, and now if you go to the gardener, if you if you walk in, all of those frames are still in the same place because they can't move anything. <laughs> so they're just empty frames hanging around the museum waiting wish, for the return of the art i wish i would have known about this when i was in boston that'd be yeah. really funny to just go, and, go see. and be like this is where the rembrandt used to be that's where the finial eagle used to be yeah it makes me wonder like you said if there was uh specific pieces that like they had a list that yeah they had to go through and get because these don't sound like they were all like housed around each other either like they were kind of well, most of them were from the one gallery, but I don't know how close they were together. Yeah. The, the one the the one's painting was taken from the blue room because they that's why they suspected Rick, but most of them were taken from the the Dutch room. Mm-hmm. But it just it's it's really curious. There's so much intrigue around like different people who had a a potential horse in the race. Yeah. That's what gets me is how do you have no idea? Like you're all over the place. And now they're like, oh, we're sure of it. It was the Italian mob. We know the end. We can't do anything about it because the statute of limitations is up. (laughs) We know. Well, and also it's the mob. Like there's not a great track record of taking them to court. Yeah. Rico. That's the end. (laughs) So thanks for joining us today as we discussed even more unsolved crimes. We hope that you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. So just send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending <laughs> a story, we ask that you put listener story in the subject line so we can sort through those a little more easily. Yes, I did have an intense pause there, like William Shatner, but I'm very tired and I'm on night shift. Give me a break. <laughs> no. If Do you you're know not anything that give, happened to if the... you're not going to give Casey a break... Please send us an email and let us know. Yeah. Do you know anything about the Gardner Art Heist? Do you know anything about Mr. Cool or his accomplice, Mr. Cool? We need to know. We don't need to know. Well, I mean, we do need to know, but tell the the authorities first, for sure. (laughs) Then send us an email and a portion of your reward uh, reward is acceptable. (laughs) Thank you. Especially if you get that 10 mil from the gardener. Um, You can also find us on Instagram at strained underscore unusual underscore podcast or our personal accounts Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange and unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're also on Facebook. Just search for the Strange and Unusual podcast. If you'd like, you can join us over on Patreon.com slash strange and unusual. Uh, we have some bonus episodes. We have access to our Discord. We do around about monthly polls um, on cases that we want to cover or topics that we should cover. And there's even a um, level that you can pay for to just tell us a case to cover with like one or two caveats of cases that we won't cover. Yeah. <laughs> um, or I don't know. I've got a price, but it is definitely more than, than the top well. price. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it would just be a, a a Patreon exclusive. I would not post that on there. Okay. Anyway, gotcha. I talk about that every time. But we understand right now, given the situation of existence, especially in the U.S., um, that times are tough and money is tight. And we can understand totally if you cannot financially support us. We just ask that you like, share, subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends, share us with your enemies, share us with the person stealing art from your uh, museum. Yep. (laughs) 
can you imagine like someone just playing us over loudspeakers while they're just stealing a shit ton of art love it please <laughs> playing this episode <laughs> oh man well anyway did you know did you did you just sip a pepsi i did <laughs> i cannot get over that pepsi was called brad's drink at some <laughs> point <laughs> okay bye bye